Well, hey, we're going to be uh, diving into the scripture this morning and continuing in a series that we've been in entitled Spread. And the, and the subtitle of this series is How to Live When You No Longer Have Home Court Advantage. And if you haven't been hanging out with us on a Sunday, or maybe this is your first Sunday, here's what I know is that um, it doesn't always feel like in life that we have home court advantage. Because how many of you guys know when you go to a home game, you know, for your favorite team or whatever, you got the crowd cheering you on, but many times in our life it doesn't feel like we got people on our side. It doesn't always feel like when we're like pushing through with whatever's in front of us in our life that we have this big crowd of people cheering us on, right? Many times it just feels like there's obstacles in front of us. Many seasons it just feels like, man, there's like nobody that I can relate to or nobody who's on my side. So we're opening the Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 12, and the book of Acts is the story of the early church, right? This small little cult called the Way started when this guy named Jesus who claimed to be God resurrected from the dead, and people started following him. But how many of you guys know that wasn't like the popular, most popular idea during that day and age, right? A handful of people started following this guy named Jesus and started leading what people would consider a cult, but it's amazing because you read in the book of Acts how even though in this Roman dominant culture, government, and empire, the early church figured out a way, even with their backs against the wall, even it being outnumbered, a way to thrive and multiply into what we have today in 2019 as the modern church of Jesus. From a handful of people that many would deem as crazy, it's multiplied out to a couple billion people who self-identify as Christians in the world today. And here's, here's the amazing thing. God's strategy, as the title of this series, was to spread. How many of you guys know God's big enough to be like, I want everybody to understand who I am. Poof! You know, it's like God didn't choose a poofing, you know, and in terms of how his message was going to infiltrate people's lives, right? But this is the amazing thing. He chooses humanity. He chooses us as broken, imperfect people to spread this message, be a part of the big things, that, the ways that God and heaven, the presence of God, is breaking through in our lives and in our culture. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in Acts chapter 12, and the title of this message specifically, if you're taking notes, is this, God and Humans. <laughs> I love this title. You're like, that's, that's what you came up with this week, Pastor? It is. Okay. You're going to figure out why, right? Because um, here's, here's what I believe. No matter your context of struggle, no matter what you're facing today, it's helpful for understand, to understand what's our place in the cosmos. What's our place in this universe? Why am I living? Why am I breathing? And, and we kind of set the stage a little bit last week, but the amazing thing if, as you read the Bible, you understand that through the biblical narrative, there's a God who's a, the main character of this story in the biblical narrative who is all-powerful, who knows the beginning from the end, but he literally allows human will to take part in the authority of God. There's this interesting relationship where God, yes, he is in control, ultimately, he is in charge, but he has allowed us as human beings to operate within our own scope of our own free will. None of us live life as robots. None of us live life as pawns in this massive scheme that God has controlled, but he literally allows us to control our own very scope of our own free will that we have, and we get to choose what we use that will to do with in our life. And this morning, I just believe that when we understand our own will in light of God's will, that it begins to get really crystal clear in terms of how we can overcome some of the obstacles in our life in some of the areas, some of the seasons where it feels like we're outnumbered. It's interesting because we, as human beings, we have our own human will. It's almost like the kingdom of me, right? 
We love to live under the kingdom of ourselves. But Jesus introduces this revolutionary idea. The first thing he ever preaches about is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, his authority manifesting on earth. And there's this interesting relationship between God and humans, right? And it's this marriage between the will of ourselves and the will and the government of God. This is why prayer is so powerful. We just came off a week as a church uh, praying or fasting and praying for seven days. And that's where we left off last week in the scripture is that Peter, this leader of the church, he was arrested and the church began to pray. But prayer is so powerful when we begin to th- look at the relationship between God's will and human will because it's this marriage that comes together. Much like when Jesus, people are like, how should we pray, Jesus? He, was, he, he told us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This marriage between God's kingdom manifesting through his people on the earth. And this marriage is what we're going to be looking at a little bit this morning and dissecting and understanding the passage that we're about to read. So let's pray really quick one last time and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Lord, we're just thankful for you this morning. Lord, we're thankful that you're setting the stage right now for, for our hearts to maybe embrace something new. Lord, you want to do something in us that's so powerful something miraculous within us uh, that we take away from this place today. So, Lord, change us. Would this not just be another Sunday? Would this just not be another service? But would we understand that, Lord, you want to do something that transcends in each and every one of our lives this morning? We have the opportunity to hear from you. So, Lord, shape us, challenge us, convict us, Lord. Help us move forward and grow closer and closer into what you would have for our lives today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. We're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 9. So the leader of the church, Peter, he's, he's locked in prison. He's basically locked up because of this man named Herod who wreaks terror simply because of his political pressures that he's involved with and uh, is going to basically give Peter the death sentence. So we're going to pick up in verse 6 of Acts chapter 12. It says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So let's just stop for a second. Like, Peter, he's not just, like, in jail. Like, it's not like, hey, you have this little, like, box cubicle of a jail that you just kind of get to hang out with. It's like, no, like, dude is, like, locked up. This guy is, like, people are on guard. Like, we're not going to mess this up. You know what I mean? We're not going to, like, Ted Bundy this, and the guy's going to escape from jail. Anybody, right, been watching these documentaries? Okay, just me. Um, Anyway, okay, so he's bound up, right? Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. It says this, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Okay, first off, angelic being, shining, like, okay, we understand that Peter must be in a very, very deep sleep because first and foremost, angel walks in the the cell, right? And like the light, the bright light on its own, like how is this guy sleeping this well in jail anyway, right? And he doesn't wake up. So here's what we know. You know, Peter's obviously a deep sleeper, right? And to the point where not even the angel's light shining wakes him up, the angel's literally got to like poke at him, prod at him, be like, dude, wake up. What's going on here? So he wakes up and says, quick, the angel, quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Now, 
If you've ever watched, like, Prison Break or any other show or movie that has to do with, like, prison escapes, it's not like, hey, um, let me uh, put on the clothes that I need to put on. Let me get the sandals on correctly. Like, if you're escaping, like, it's like, we got one little opportunity. We're going to get out of there. So this clues us in to understand that this, this wasn't about immediacy. This isn't about, like, you only got this small window. This was about, hey, get prepared. You're going to have a little bit of a journey ahead of you, Right? As this miraculous manifestation of an angel comes and literally breaks the chains off Peter. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. In verse 9 it says, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Now this is, this is cru- crucial, this last part here, that he thought he was seeing a vision because... I'll be honest, many skeptics, when we start talking about miraculous things, many skeptics kind of categorize the people of this day and say, well, they didn't know any better. They didn't know the difference between hallucinations and and what actually was reality. But it's interesting because what Peter describes here and what's described in the biblical narrative as Luke is penning this and describing these events is that Peter actually had a definition of understanding what reality was and what visions and supernatural things that he'd experienced before. There was actually a difference that he understood, right? And it's interesting because many times skeptics use this logic and apply it to the resurrection of Jesus, that, okay, you know, like, well, the reason why people saw this dead guy walking around alive was because literally people didn't know the difference between reality and what hallucination was. And, and they begin to apply this principle and saying, well, I, you know, there's this corporate group of people that were hallucinating, right? That they saw this guy, like, they, they didn't know, they, they didn't have a difference between reality. They obviously were all hallucinating. But as we all know, that hallucination isn't a corporate experience. If somebody hallucinates, it's a personal one. And what we do, what we have with the resurrection of Jesus is we have a historical proof of people, eyewitnesses, time after time, understanding and seeing the same thing over and over. And rather than these being archaic people that didn't understand the difference between dreams and realities, what do you know? These are people that function just like us. Anybody ever had a vivid dream in the house? Right? It's like you wake up from that dream, and sometimes you're like, I want to go back to bed because you're like, that was awesome. You know, you just like try to insert yourself back into the dream. Or many times it just takes a while to kind of shake it off, right? So let's just get on a human level and understand that sometimes when we get woken up from a deep sleep, sometimes when we're having these types of experiences as humans, these are natural occurrences. Much of like what's probably being described for us as we understand the circumstances, the very specific circumstances that Peter was under. It takes us a while to get out of that reality when we have very vivid dreams or sometimes when something so bizarre or unpleasant happens in our lives, we sometimes hope it's a dream, only then concluding that it's not. Many of us can relate to that. We've had horrible things happen in our lives, but we wish it was a dream, and then we come to terms and grips that this is actually real life. Ancient people were well aware of the difference between vivid dreams and reality. I think about it in terms of Us magazine, these celebrity magazines. You know, it's always like, they're just like us. You know, it shows like a celebrity going into the grocery store. Look, they grocery shop. And you're just like, of course they do. The same thing applies here, right? These are people. They're just like us. This isn't a fairy tale. This is a struggle and a marriage between the things of God and the things of men. 
And for us as the reader, it's helpful to understand a human level as we understand what Peter was experiencing and going through. That what he was experiencing was so vivid, so surreal for him, it was like, man, is this a dream? But this is what we do, right? This is what humans do. We struggle through the human experience, sometimes not being able to decipher because of our imperfect nature of using our lens towards life. But meanwhile, God, on the other hand, what is he doing? He's, he's doing the supernatural. He's doing only what he can do. He's breaking the chains off of Peter. He's allowing, for whatever reason, the guards, the sentries, everyone who is there chained to him, not even be able to trace him as he escapes. There's something supernatural going on, and we could nitpick at how is this even possible. But here's what we know. There was a beautiful marriage happening between imperfect human being and the God of the universe allowing this to take place. But this is what God does. Let's continue on in verse 10. It continues. It says, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. There they go. There's passing. There's layers of security. And somehow, supernaturally, this event is unfolding. They get to the gate, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. It's so interesting because in the same way, the stone was rolled away when Jesus resurrected. There was a supernatural event where nobody knew or could claim who moved this massive stone that was at the graveside of Jesus. And in the same way, God does something specific and similar here where there's this massive iron gate, and it opens. God does only what he can do in the same type of way. It says, when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Angel's like, peace out. Remember that whole preparation thing? I'm not holding your hand through it. Good luck, right? Then Peter came to himself, right, and said, oh, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. See, Herod and the Jewish people were hoping that he would die, that this thing called Christianity would die out that was threatening all of the over-religious Jewish people that were holding on, that were holding on for dear life of what they thought God was doing in this season, but God was doing something so new, so powerful, and Peter's deep sleep is wearing off. But I love this. This is the church's all-star. And, and what are we introduced to right here? This is a faith and doubt type of guy. This is a guy, once again, just like us. This is supposed to be the church's all-star, the leader of the church. And he's having this experience where he doesn't even understand or really believe he's coming to his senses of what he's experienced. You might say, well, he should. Because, Pastor, there's that, he was the same guy that the angel broke him out of jail, right? If you know anything about the scriptures up to this point, a similar occurrence happened while Peter was in jail. He's just saying, he should have expected that. But I'll say this, we got to, we got to, We've got to ease up on Peter a little bit because he's also the guy that received a vision from God where a huge tablecloth comes down with a bunch of different animals and foods on it, and God tells him to eat it, right? So we've got to kind of like relax. The difference between is this reality or is this a vision, Peter's experienced both, and he's trying to navigate, well, God, what are you doing? But I love it because that's just kind of like the struggle of us as humans. Like it's hard to decipher sometimes what God's doing, and that's okay, it's a struggle for us in our relationship with God to decipher, God, what are you doing? We don't always know right off the bat, right? This is what humans do. We sometimes struggle in acknowledging, recognizing, walking with God perfectly. But it's amazing because God was being God. This was during a time when the Jewish festival of Passover was being celebrated 
where literally they were celebrating the fact that the people of God at one point were under captivity and slavery under Egypt, and God miraculously, what did he do? He miraculously allowed God's people to break out of the slavery of Egypt to be free. And what do we have in this beautiful narrative? God saying, hey, let me remind you. You might say I'm a different God. Jews might be claiming that Jesus and what Jesus is now doing isn't a different God. But let me remind you, I'm the God who breaks people free from the chains of bondage. I'm the God who even in this circumstance, in a micro-narrative, is showing I'm that same God who breaks people free from the slavery and the bondage that they are in. But ultimately, Jesus proves that he is a God that not literally only breaks people free from chains on earth, but literally gives us freedom from sin, from death. See, we as humans, we sometimes struggle in our relationship with God, but God, he does only what he can do. He's the one that breaks, the, breaks us free from the chains of sin and death. He overcomes death by simply by what Jesus has done for us as he died on the cross. Humans, we provide a ton of mistakes and inconsistencies in our life. But God, he's the one in the background. He's opening the gates. He's doing the things that only he can do. We're walking along, sometimes not recognizing, who is this angel that's doing this for me? God, why is this happening to me? God, why am I experiencing this season, this obstacle? But in the meantime, God's in the background opening those gates for our lives. It continues on, verse 12. When this had dawned on him, <laughs> so Peter wakes up, okay, no angel to help me. Okay, I'm coming to my center. I'm awake now. I'm trying to figure out what's happened. This wasn't a vision. This actually literally happened. Now I'm stranded here, but hey, at least I got clothes on, right? This dawned on him. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So we're, we're going back because the last thing we knew was like, Peter, he'd been locked up. The church was going to pray. The church started praying. So basically Peter now, he's going, he's going to go interrupt the prayer meeting, right? Guys, I'm here, right? Like your prayers have been answered. Your prayers have worked. So Peter knocks out at the outer entrance, right? And a servant named Rada came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door, right? It's like, Peter, he's here. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. Okay, so automatically angel for us probably triggers a few drop-down menus of our mind of understanding. Like we visualize things. I don't know about you guys, but when I like hear words, like I visualize stuff. Many times we're visually simulating in terms of what we think of. So when we hear angel, we, we think different things. We got to understand angel for what people meant during this time. And angel, the term angel had a lot to do with the resurrection of the dead and what people believed about the resurrection of the dead, okay? So people, when they talked about the resurrection of the dead, during this time, Pharisees, the early church, they believed that a dead person was still alive in some sense, though now not bodily, between death and bodily resurrection, right? So this kind of in-between, this kind of like they're still with us, but they're, they're not. And, and what was described, and the term, that most popular term that was used to describe this type of experience was, it's an angel or a spirit, right? So we have the context of basically them dismissing and saying, okay, like, Peter's obviously dead. This is obviously, our prayers haven't worked, our prayers haven't been answered, and we know now Peter's kind of making his last visitation, right? And once again, this is, this is for us as humans. Many of us have had these types of experiences where we've had close people in our lives pass away, and there's moments soon after the person's death where we're like, we felt like there was an acknowledgement. 
we felt like for a moment, it felt like that person was actually sitting with us, was there with us, being with us, maybe even speaking to us, smiling at us, cheering us up, and then they're gone. And for skeptics, many people say, well, this is what happened with Jesus, right? We get to the humanity level, and for many of us, we've experienced such things just as that, where we feel this closeness of of the spiritual realm of those who have have left us on earth. But many skeptics, they say, well, this is is what happened with Jesus, right? His, His body's in the tomb, and people were experiencing the spirit of the one whom they loved. But it's interesting, because there was an awareness for them of this phenomenon. They categorized it with their own language of saying, no, no, no. We understand what an angel is. We understand what happens, what we, how we categorize an angel or a spirit when we sense something that has gone, passed on, that we feel this presence. And they knew the difference between that and this topic of resurrection was not the same thing. For them, resurrection could not be thrown away as, well, we just experienced this kind of thing. Jesus just died, and we all kind of had this kind of last moment with him. But they described something in their language that was completely differently, different categorically. It was the resurrection. The resurrection was something so different than an angel or a spirit. And it continues in Acts chapter 12, verse 16. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. Peter gets left outside, right? Come on. Church people, come on. Can we like just like give ourselves a pass and just laugh a little bit sometimes? That man, sometimes we go hard. We're praying for things. We're getting all spiritual together. And what do you know? We're fumbling through life, and we don't even, can't even see a miracle, can't even see what God's doing when he's right in front of us. Peter, the answer to the prayer is knocking on the door, and the, literally the people are like, we're going to keep praying. Come on. Let's go for it, church, right? They're just going for it. And I love it because in the middle of this harsh persecution against the church, man, I love how God has such a sense of humor. He reminds us, come on, as imperfect human beings, we can't take ourselves too serious. Man, when we act really churchy, You know, sometimes God does, he humbles us and reminds us that we are imperfect and he's the one in charge. Amen. They literally leave Peter outside and they were astonished. These are all stars of the church, right? These are the guys that started it all. But once again, these are faith and doubt type of people. These are people that are big people of faith, but how many of you guys know? They're just like us. This is what we do as humans. We struggle in the midst of even the big things that God's doing happening and figuring out how we fit in to this larger narrative of what God's doing. This is what we as humans do. God opens the gates, but we as humans, we keep people, keep people out of the gates, right? <laughs> it's like, God opened the gate miraculously, and now there's just a human gate that needs to be navigated, and we as humans, what do we do? We're pushing up against that gate, even though God's done the miraculous and set the stage. But that's us. And then it goes on in Acts chapter 12. Verse 17, it says, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. It's like, hey, guys, chill out. I just escaped from jail, and there's, there's a bounty on my head, right? He describes how the Lord brought him out of prison. He says this. He says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. So Peter just drops a message and leaves. But I think it's so interesting what he communicates. He highlights one person in particular. One name is highlighted, and this is James. James, the brother of Jesus. Now, up to this point, there's been a James that has been 
killed. This is a different James. James, uh, not that many selection of boy names, I guess, in the ancient Near East, right? Because there's tons and tons of people named very common names. Mary, another one. You're like, why are there so many Marys in the Gospels? It's like, well, there wasn't that many names, right? So many people had the same name. James was none of those. But this James is significant because this is the brother of Jesus. This is the guy that was not a Christian, was not a follower of Jesus, because his brother was literally claiming to be God. But after the resurrection, he was convinced and moved in such a way that this guy was sold out to say, okay, my brother claimed to be God, but I'm going to acknowledge him as God. How much does it take for a person to transfer and transition to a point of saying and humbling themselves of saying, I'm admitting that my brother is God and I was a skeptic prior. So this is a guy that gets highlighted by Peter, the leader of the church. I'm leaving, but hey, James, here's what you need to know. And we know from this point forward that James becomes one of the key leaders of the church from this point on because of the persecution. But I love it because this is the spread. This is the spread. Things aren't looking good for, for Jesus' favorite three, the sons of thunder, James, John, Peter. Let's think about this. Peter, there's a bounty on his head. He's leaving. He's going. He's got to go into hiding. James, this other James, he's dead. John, well, that's the brother of James, which we can assume that he's in hiding. So who's leading the church? Their legacies have kind of run dry. But I love it. The spread is happening through discipleship. Literally, these have been men that have poured into other men's lives. These have been people that are pouring into other people for Jesus. It's amazing when we think about our life, our will. We think about our kingdom, right? Our kingdom only lasts a lifetime. But literally, God sees beyond that. We have a scope. We have our own will. We have a vision for our own life. But th there comes a point where that life ends. But this is why Jesus conquers death. Because he wants our life to be committed to something that goes beyond the legacy. Something that goes beyond to us always selfishly thinking inward and thinking of, how can I pour into the lives of other people? I have a personal responsibility each and every day where I can literally think beyond the legacy of myself and pour into future generations to keep this baby going. No matter the persecution, no matter the hurt, no matter the season, Jesus uses this strategy to spread his church through pouring into other people. Those who are no, were, were once skeptics, those who have now transitioned into being followers of Jesus that are now being admonished and commissioned to move forward. Because things are having to move forward differently. One day, each and every one of us will die. And Jesus knew that in his strategy on earth. And this is why he chose the method to spread. Spread through imperfect humans. And maybe this morning you're like, I don't have home court advantage. And I just ask you this this morning. How are you spreading your positive influence on a daily basis to other people? How are you investing in others? How are you doing what is really just kind of a, a quick moment as Peter's moving on. He's like, okay, James, you're the guy. How are we doing that with others? How are we using our lives to invest and give what we have into other people so that they will literally be catapulted into a better place for their lifetime and beyond? How are you using your influence? And this is what's so interesting as human beings. We love institutions to take care of our problems. For some of us in the room, we're just, we think about the church, and we literally are like, well, that's the place where I go serve their vision, right? And it's going to take care of this, this institution called the church is going to take care of the needs of the city, right? 
And there's truth to what we can accomplish communally. I don't want to devalue the, the powerful witness of what the church is able to accomplish when we're together. But each and every one of us, we can't mix up our personal proxy with the institutional proxy. Many times, it's almost like we put ourselves in a chokehold and say, here's my free will, and I'm going to give the freedom and opportunity I have in each and every moment of my life and give it to an institution because the institution is supposed to take care of it. But how many of you guys understand that each and every one of us, breathing, living, have a personal responsibility where we can literally, on a person-by-person basis, bring change to the world? There's going to be great things we're going to do as a church together, but here's what I truly believe. The most powerful way in how we can accomplish breakthrough and heaven crashing into earth in our city is when each and every one of us personally and individually own the fact that every day we have an opportunity to be change makers. Wherever you're at, whatever influence you have, your workplace, your school, your friendships, your family, we can be people that push God's thoughts, ideas, and his government forward one person at a time. And it's the same strategy he used when the church didn't have the benefit to meet together corporately. How many of you guys know church buildings weren't actually created until hundreds of years later? This is how the early church functioned and multiplied. And for many of us, the institution can create an obstacle and rob us from the personal proxy each and every one of us have as living, breathing human beings who literally bring the DNA of heaven everywhere we go. And it finishes in Acts 12, 18 through 19. It says this. It says, In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them they be executed. Sucks to be them. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. Those guys supernaturally were asleep or, you know, whatever God did in those moments. But Herod's like, you know what? I'm taking it out on them. You guys let them escape. Death. But the church was causing a commotion. The church was praying, the church was making all sorts of mistakes, missing God, fumbling through it, and they're making a mess. And this is what humans do. We make a mess, but God invites us to be people that do that with our lives, with the personal proxy of our own responsibility. Rather than institutionally handing those priorities, those things away that God has given us in our own free will, man, he invites us to be a part of the process. But I love it because we're reminded and saying, wow, look at the heroes of this, of this passage. These are guys who are prayer warriors praying for breakthrough. We saw miraculous things happen. But I love this section of scripture because in the same way that we titled this message, God and Humans, we understand first and foremost that God still proves himself to be the big number one hero each and every time. We play a part in this. We fumble through it. But God ultimately, he's number one. He's the hero. His government rules and reigns. He's the one who opens those gates supernaturally. He's the one that does the things that only he can do. And although he uses us as the vessel, the vehicle, to spread his message, ultimately, and once again, he is still in charge. So here's here's a practical application that I want us to walk away with this morning. What are are you going to do with your free will? Just a question. What are you going to do? Because you've got some. God does not literally operate robotically with you. God is not forcing you to be here this morning. If God dropped the bomb, the poof bomb, these seats would all be filled. Right? Because everybody's forced to worship this God at a church. And No. Each and every one of us has free will. What are we going to do with that? 
Are we literally making the world a better place? Are we making the world look more and more like heaven with the personal responsibility we have? Are we literally giving that responsibility away and saying, no, this thing's supposed to deal with it. Well, you know, my boss, you know, it's up to him to be the change. We're literally giving away the personal responsibility we have. Well, it's up to my professor of how good of a teacher he is of whether I get a good grade on this. You're just giving, you're institutionally giving away a personal responsibility where God's saying, no, you be the change agent. You have your back against the wall. You're outnumbered, but you have everything you need to invest in other people and to spread this thing and make this world look a lot more like heaven than hell. So I want to encourage us with the next step this morning. We have an opportunity to do that. And if you're a person that Maybe, you know, you've, you've, you're kind of like, okay, that's me. Maybe how do I take a next step? What's my next step? We have an option. We do these four Ponca City events. And the, one of the ones that's coming up is called the Great Day of Service. Have you never been a part of this before? Literally, churches in our community get together. We have one day where we all do yard work and do spring cleaning and help our neighbors. And I think it's, once again, it's something that we can do together. But how many of you guys know that it takes the personal responsibility to say yes? And here's, here's my prayer is that, man, we would actually apply ourselves to this. Say, this is a way that we can invest big picture. We can hand the baton off. We can invest in the good things, make a difference in our neighborhood and our community. So our, it's coming up April 7th. We want to have that back up on the screen. Great day of service, April 7th. You can sign up at the Connect table, so you can swing by the Connect table on your way out, or you can go to our website online, ponkcitychurch.com slash events. But here's what I would say. I would just challenge us. This is a great opportunity. Maybe you've invested in this event before. Maybe you never have before. This is a great next step for us to practically say, okay, how am I going to use my free will to invest in things that matter? Gets our brain kind of motivated. Gets us thinking about things that are greater than our lifetime or our lifespan, right? Where we're literally investing into eternal things and eternal change. And how many guys know that when you clean or you do something so simple and practical for somebody else, the love of Jesus bursts forth out of that thing so beautifully? We're just going to be a church that, yes, we're going to seek God in a very spiritual environment and nature, but we better be people where that love and that spiritual catapults us to actually truly have people sense and feel as humans in the capacity of human beings that they're being loved and they're being cared for. Amen? Can we pray this morning?